Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 55 and a shelter in the storm. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we thank you that your word is true and that uh, we thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that you aim to take it and you aim to speak to us from the word about the person and the work of Christ. And you aim, Lord, to help us, to teach us, to instruct us, to help us to walk in the way and in a manner that pleases and honors and glorifies you. And so, Lord, as we look at this text, we pray that you would take it and that it would land on the good soil bed of our hearts, that you would illuminate it to our hearts and to our minds, and that... um, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word and for your truth. And we just love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 55. Psalm 55 says this. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, for the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, and that I can hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, of my familiar friend. We used to take sweet, we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companions stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, and yet... War was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. 
Psalm 55 is a last in a series of prayers that present David's response to betrayal. This progression is one of increasing intensity so that Psalm 55 responds to the most painful betrayal since it came from a companion and a familiar friend in Psalm 55, 13. The effects of this assault are more painful than in previous cases, and David staggers under the violated friendship and the broken covenant. David's suffering is a, is a foretaste of the experience by his great descendant, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of his betrayal lamenting in John 13, 18, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And since Jesus was citing David's experience in Psalm 41, 9, we may conclude that David's grief over the treachery of a friend provides us with insight into Jesus' suffering over Judas' betrayal. David's shock grief leads, uh, leads him to seek a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest in Psalm 55, 8, which he finds by turning to God in prayer in verse 16 of Psalm 55, which says, I call to God and the Lord will save me. Now, Psalm 55 not only records David's grief in this affliction, but it also shows how his faith enabled him to recover. So the psalm progresses in three sections. In verses 1 through 8, they record David in the grip of fear. In verses 9 through 15, they show David's fury in reacting against his enemy. In verses 16 through 23, it reveals David's faith as he regathers himself in the shelter of prayer. Now, David's prayer with a frank admission of his need to know the presence of God. In, in Psalm 55, 1, it says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. And so David feels alone, and he opens his heart to a God he cannot see, asking for a sense of the grace of God, in verse 2, which says, Attend to me and answer me. I am restless, and I complain, and I moan. H.P. Leipold remarks that David is a man who began to pray but found his situation so overpowering that he had first to unburden his heart of grief to the Lord. And needing this, David wants to be sure that he is being heard. And now having rushed into the arms of God, David breaks down completely, expressing his terror. He speaks of the noise of the enemy and the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me in Psalm 55, 3. And now not only does David face evil in general, but wickedness is personally directed against him. And he admits to the Lord that he is completely overwhelmed by this malice. However calm and however composed David may be in a public demeanor, when he comes to God, he is like a child who breaks down in tears in his mother's arms. In verses 4 through 5, he says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And these may be surprising words from somebody like King David. This is the man who as a youth stood fearlessly before the giant Goliath and when all of his countrymen were cowering and slew him in the name of God. This is the intrepid leader who guided his band through years of danger under Saul's persecution and who definitely managed a seven-year civil war. And now David speaks of the city which means Jerusalem in verse 9. This psalm was probably written during his reign as a king. And so how can such a man break down in complete anxiety over a new threat to his life? Well, one suggestion to this was offered by James Boyce, who saw David's fear as a sign of his weariness later in life. 
older, more experienced people have learned how vulnerable they are to truly bad things happening. An advancing age gives them less energy to cope with their problems. This possibility is corroborated by experience. Consider Stephen Ambrose. He points out that in the Allied invasion of Normandy beaches in June 1944, the high command intentionally placed few combat veterans divisions in the first assault wave. Ambrose explains, For a direct frontal assault on a prepared enemy position, men who have not seen what a bullet or a landmine or an exploding mortar round can do to a human body are preferable to men who have seen the carnage. And now instead of veteran troops, the Allied armies mainly employed well-trained units that would be fighting for the first time, full of confidence and eager in the assault. And when it came to the violence of war, David had seen it all. And the result was a terror that gripped his heart. In verses 4 through 5, he says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Now, it's not inconsistent for a true and a living faith to break down in fear before great dangers. And to prove this, we only need to consider the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, of whom David in Psalm 55 is a type. Jesus fell on his face in agony of prayer, experiencing so much anxiety and blood vessels burst in his forehead, according to Luke twenty-two forty-four, He appealed to the Father to spare him the ordeal of the cross before eventually surrendering to his Father's will in Luke twenty-two forty-two through 44. And this reminds us that in his true humanity as the suffering servant of God, Jesus experienced the very worst of the evil of this world, and he was tormented by it. And when a Christian breaks down, in the terror of the, in the face of death and anxiety for overwhelming troubles, he may look to Jesus as the one who knows what it's like and is able to understand and is able to show compassion. The fearful Christian who turns to Christ will find strength from him to endure, just as Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane strengthened him with boldness to face the Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers. And now all that we can think of in Psalm 55, 6 is, all that David can think of is, is about escaping his ordeal, and he cries out in verses 6 through 7, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander away. I would lodge in the wilderness. David may have singled out the dove because of its great speed that enables it to escape from the hunting hawk. And when we remember that David was a man with a high calling and great responsibilities, we find it alarming that he would want to run away from his troubles and thus from his duties. One possible historical setting for this psalm is the revolt of David's son Absalom, who launched a civil war with such sudden fury that David was forced to flee Jerusalem for his life. And whether this was the occasion or not, John Calvin notes, these are the words of a man driven to the borders of desperation. And yet God did not give David wings to fly out of his troubles and responsibilities, just as he usually denies them to us as well. Now, when David longs to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest in verse 8, he will find it in prayer with God. We may thank God that although Jesus had the power to flee from troubles as he faced the cross, instead, he chose to submit to the Father's will in order that he would suffer for our sins and rise on the third day. And now, whatever occasion prompted this psalm, it's clear that David did not flee from the trouble. Having first cried out in fear to God, he expressed his outrage 
fury against his foe. And in his case, the enemy was found within the walls of his own city, probably Jerusalem, in verses 9 through 11, which says, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around, they go around on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst, oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Now, here in these verses, David personifies Jerusalem's vices in three ways. First, violence and strife prowl the city like the intruder. Second, iniquity and trouble are within it along with their ruin. Third, oppression and fraud are like the rule of the marketplace. David looks on his dreadful situation. The problem is the moral state of the city. That is, the problem is with the people themselves in the city. And as a famous Pogo cartoon once declared, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. James Boyce says, What's, what is wrong here with the cities of America, of course? We want to blame our problems on the environment or the government programs or the lack of government programs. But the problem is not out there, it's within. The problem is, is that we're sinners and this means that there will never be a substantial improvement in the moral state of our cities or the country as a whole for that matter until there is a deep moral improvement in America's people. Such an improvement can only happen through the spiritual renewal that comes from a living faith in Jesus Christ. And so James Boyce says, there is nothing America needs so much right now as a Holy Spirit produced revival and reformation. And if that is true, then there is no greater need from Christians than a renewed commitment to prayer, a loving godliness that commends the gospel and the preaching, the faithful preaching and the witness of the word of God. Now, David is dismayed when he looks out his window on the city, but the blow that has slid under his guard and struck him in the heart has come from somewhere cl much closer. He laments in verses 12 through 13, It is not an enemy that taunts me that I can bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me and that I can hide from him. But it is you, man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. And here is a situation for which Psalm 55 stands out from others near it. Whereas David would have been prepared to deflect a blow from an enemy, this attack has come from right beside him, from my companion, my familiar friend. And this friend turned foe is someone with whom David used to take sweet counsel together. David had opened his heart to this friend in a spiritual bond. In verse 14, he says, Within God's house we walked in the throng. To his utter dismay, the blow has fallen on David in betrayal of this intimate friendship. And so as we've been talking, the most likely situation that fits Psalm 55 is Absalom's revolve against his father. And when that coup took place, David was grieved by the treason of a Fiddlefell who had been his personal counselor. And this fits a Psalm 55 in that David describes the traitor as my companion, which suggests a member of his inner working group. And at the very least, the treason of a Philophel is a cautionary example of the kind of betrayal to which the psalm refers. David had known many enemies before, but what made this attack hurt so much was that it came from a man whom the king had looked on as a trusted friend. His grief shows us what an important priority it is for Christians to be faithful friends and faithful colleagues. In fact, experience in ministry would show one that the kind of betrayal that so wounded David is remarkably common. What a condemnation it is on the human condition that many people, perhaps most of us, will have some occasion to lament not merely attacks from well-known enemies, but also malicious treachery from those close to us. 
William Plummer says, were friendship sacred and never disgraced by treachery, some might doubt the depravity of man. As things are, he concludes, there is no room for incredulity as the doctrine of universal sin is safely intact. How many of us or those who we have known have been betrayed or maliciously abused by a spouse, cheated on by a business partner, savagely abused by parents, turned on by the closest of friends, or let down by a ministry colleague? David vents his anguish over the intense violation he has experienced. In verses 20 through 21, he says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, and yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. A violated covenant bond. Smooth words used as weapons. Far deadlier than sticks and stones may break our bones. These knives cut to the very heart. And what causes a person to betray in this fashion? Well, in a Philophel's case, it seemed to be a pure power play. The temptation to make himself a de facto ruler through David's weaker son, Absalom, proved too tempting for his loyalty. And today, betrayal is caused by simple and even common causes, such as greed, pride, and lust. The bonds of covenant and the sanctity of oaths are held lightly by many, and given the chance for a better deal, many will trample close friendships and even family bonds into a bloody mire and mess. And now, not only are they the most grievous of all wounds, deeper than the blows of others, which David says he would have been able to bear, but our response to them will play an important role in shaping the life that we will have in years afterwards. Now, David's response to his betrayal was typical. First, he prayed for God to confuse his opponents so as to overthrow their evil plans. In verse 9, he says, Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. And David sees rebellion against his throne as a usurpation of the rule of God. And he asks the Lord to sow uh, discord and conflict among his enemies so that his uh, enemies will be collapsed. This is exactly how David prayed during Absalom's revolt when he sent his own agents to defeat for me the counsel of a Philophel in 2 Samuel 15.34. David answers, uh, God answers, excuse me, David's prayer. And so the Absalom refused to heed a Philophel's advice. And so foreseeing disaster, David's treacherous friend went home and took his life and the rebellion was soon destroyed by David's loyal forces in 2 Samuel 17.23. And the prayer Confusion to our enemies is a legitimate prayer from believers who face menacing legal teams, unsavory business coalitions, and hostile family factions. And so David's venting did not stop with a prayer for the overthrow of evil. He went on second to desire utter destruction on those who had hurt him. In Psalm 55, 15, uh, David says, Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. We should be careful in criticizing this kind of imprecatory prayer, which is remarkably common in the Psalms. John Calvin refers to the holy and regulated fervor with which David prays for the judgment of God against wicked men who had already been doomed to an everlasting destruction and distinguishes such a prayer from a sinful spirit of revenge. It is important for God to overthrow the wicked and thus it is appropriate for God's people to pray in these terms. And having defended the right kind of prophet and king like David to pray against his enemies, we still have reasons to be concerned about a spirit of hatred in prayer. 
And the bitterness expressed in verse 15 is an attitude that usually does more harm to the embittered victim than to the enemies against whom he's praying. And for this reason, we'd be troubled if David's prayer concluded with him in such a state of personal venom against his foes. In fact, the problem of bitterness in response to sin is a great one. We all have known men who have been betrayed and women who've been betrayed as well, jilted at the altar or abandoned with small children for another woman that, that 20 years later, their uh, bitter resentment continues to boil over in any kind of relationship. Some people, even victimized by ungodly churches, will spend the rest of their lives spitting venom against the church, against the household of God. There are men and women who spend all their adult years fuming inwardly over wrongs suffered in childhood at the, aunt, at the hands of parents or uh, schoolyard friends. All of these people are worthy of compassion, and we should be careful not to dismiss the sorrows of those who have been greatly sinned against. And yet we should also warn against the dangers of nurturing a bitter spirit and acid that destroys its own vessel. Now, what is the alternative? The New Testament urges us to forgive those who have sinned against us. We forgive not because others deserve to be forgiven, but because we have been forgiven of greater sins against God than any that others have committed against us. We honor the grace of God in Christ by showing grace and forgiving others. This is the rule by which we're to respond even to the sins of personal betrayal in Colossians 3.13, which says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Such forgiveness should be distinguished from trust. Only a fool would trust those who have proved unfaithful. And yet forgiveness is vital. Not only does it bear witness to the gospel, but it is also the best way to protect ourselves from a self-destructive bitterness and to restore our hearts to the peace and joy that ought to characterize a forgiven child of God. And since David was the anointed king over Israel, his duty called for more than personal forgiveness. It called for public opposition to the evildoers. Having expressed his terror and anger, David concludes his psalm with an expression of faith. And in this way, he provides a valuable example for those who are struggling not to let emotional affliction dominate their lives. A response to betrayal that starts with fear and then vents in fury can come to a healthy end only if it is resolved in faith in Christ. And David tells the reader three important truths that he has learned about prayer. First, he knows that God does hear him when he prays. This is vital. In verses 16 through 17, he says this, when he says, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Now notice that David was blessed by a structured prayer life. He set aside three periods in which he went into the presence of God each day. His example shows one way to improve our prayer life is to consistently structure our time of prayer. David's prayer times correspond more or less to the meal times of the day. Just as he needs sustenance for his body, so also he provides for the exercise of his soul in prayer with God. Grief counselors emphasize the importance of talking about the pain we feel. This is what David tells us that has helped him with the pain of betrayal. When we suffer fears and wounds that threaten to overwhelm us, we should do likewise. We need friends to whom we can confide our struggles. Since the process of talking through our griefs is part of the way uh, that they lose their grip on our hearts. But even more important than opening our hearts with earthly friends, we need to talk through them with God. And in Psalm 34, 18, he says, Hear my voice. And elsewhere he says that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
And so we can therefore uh, and should take all of our troubles, all of our griefs, and take them into the presence of the God who knows us better than anyone, and he is more faithful than we could ever dare imagine. And now not only does David benefit from the process of talking about his grief with the Lord, but second, he can trust that God will save him from destruction that he fears. So often when we have been sinned against, our heart cries out, what's going to happen to me? Much of the anxiety and the sinful malice we feel stems from a lack of faith that God will take care of us, that he is truly for us. And David remembers that we should not think that way when he says in Psalm 55, 18 through 19, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old. David reminds himself that God is perfectly able to handle his enemies. When David fears that their mocking lies will get their last word, he remembers that God humbles the proud. The eternal God who was enthroned from of old is worthy to be trusted in our afflictions so that we may regain peace in the, our time of prayer as we remember to trust him. And third, David takes solace in knowing that God will judge evildoers who refuse to repent. It's galling to think that evil will happily prevail in the end, and gnawing on this bone of contention increases the bitterness of many victims. Now, the writer of Psalm 73 admitted that anger over apparent success of the wicked was destroying his happiness. But then he says, I went into the sanctuary of God. While worshiping at the temple, he remembered the truth of God's word and then related that I discerned their end in Psalm 73, 17. The wicked will end up in hell, he remembered, unless they repent and believe the gospel. And realizing this, the Christian can leave judgment to the hands of God and get on with living in the peace that comes from the grace of God. David's appeal to God's judgment it reminds us not only to leave vengeance to God, but also to make sure that our sins are forgiven by confessing them and trusting in Christ. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it seems to have been hard for David to let go of his outrage against the betrayer he suffered. In the Psalms' final verse, he returns to the theme of God's judgment in verse 23, saying, But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. David's heart can rest only when he's sure that God will make things right and that, that high-handed abusers will not profit from their evil. And having raised up this thought one last time, David concludes by realizing that he must leave the matter in the hands of God. But I will trust in you, he concludes. And in the same way, we should leave the judgment of our enemies in God's hands and resume living in the grace and mercy and trust him for our salvation. It's not easy to give advice to those who are outraged from betrayal or reeling from grievous afflictions. It's no easy thing to receive advice in such a state, important though it is to do. And as he concludes his psalm, David appeals to us to take it from somebody who knows. He has been there. His mind has screamed in outraged pain over the treachery of a friend. His heart has bled from the wound that came under the sh his shield from a trusted confidant. His lips have tasted the bitter gall of his own spite until finally his sorrow brought him into God's presence for prayer. And some with an injured heart will often learn the lesson, never trust anyone. Seal up your heart for good, others will say after betrayal. What does David, who knows the betrayal, su suggest? He says, cast your burden on the Lord, he counsels, so that we're not destroyed by bitter sorrows. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. David's pain was so great that he had wanted to fly away to some shelter from the storms of his troubles. And the shelter he found was not far away. 
It was as near as prayer. Don't seal up your heart, David says. Don't resolve never to trust again. But take your heart and offer your trust to the one who is worthy of it. Cast your burden on the Lord. Peter's counsel is repeated in the New Testament, urging Christians in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You see, if you turn to the Lord, God will keep you going, David says. He will not allow those who seek shelter in him to be overcome with fear and with bitterness. Do you find it hard to believe that you could follow David's advice today? Then consider the example of Jesus. Facing the torment of the cross, Jesus prepared to step over the brook Kidron, to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew that his friend Judas would betray him with a kiss. And there in prayer, he placed his cares into the Father's hands, and Jesus prayed in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the, fa- that the Son may glorify you. Jesus had a closer friend and a more trusted confidant than Judas or any other of the disciples, all of whom would fail or betray him that night. And it was enough for him that the Father in heaven who would not fail or betray him. Jesus assures us that we will find the same sufficiency if we trust him. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And now realizing this truth, trusting in God, relying on the Spirit whom he sends, we like Jesus can prayerfully resolve to glorify God by finding peace in the shelter of his salvation. And having cast his cares on God, David was able to conclude, I will trust in you, in verse 23. You see, Jesus took the burden of the cross to his Father in prayer, and he was able to put God's glory and our salvation above his own well-being. And Psalm 55 makes a similar promise in our afflictions. If we cast our burden on the Lord in prayer, we may well have many troubles, but what priest it brings to know that the God who sustains us will never permit the righteous to be moved, as Psalm 55, 22 says. You know, there is a lot to say about this psalm. And probably one of the biggest things as we wrap up our time together to say is, maybe today you're facing a bitterness. Maybe there's been something that happened in your childhood or your teens or even your adult years. You know, recently I was reflecting on on this in my own life. And my teenage years were very hard. My parents got divorced when I was a sophomore in high school, and it was a very difficult time, very difficult. And that's just putting it mildly. But some others have had even harder situations. But there was a lot of chaos in our home. And there was a lot of bitterness. There was a lot of days where I went to bed falling asleep with tears in my eyes. There was a lot of years where I had bitterness in my heart against the emotional and the mental abuse that I experienced from my parents. But then I remember my junior year in high school. I was sitting uh, on my on on the floor in my room at the house uh, of my parents' house, and I read Colossians 3.13. And I remember the Lord showing me very clearly my bitterness, that I hadn't forgiven those who had hurt me. I hadn't forgiven my parents. And here I am, I'm a professing Christian. That alone, that thought alone broke me. And the well of conviction came quickly. But also with conviction, it came the pardoning grace of God. As I confessed my sin 
to the Lord that I was bitter against my father and against my mother. Maybe that's you today. You keep repeating these things in your heart that have happened against you. Again and again and again, those those words that somebody has said to you. Can I just say that take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the one who was tempted in every respect and Hebrews 2 and 4 say did not sin. Take it to the one Hebrews 4.15 says who can sympathize with you in your weakness and yet he never sinned. Take it to the Lord. You know, as Christians, what we see in this text is David faced reality with the help of God. As Christians, we do not neglect to face reality. We face reality with the help of God's grace and with the help of people in our local churches. I know for me, if it weren't for the help of God's people in my teenage years, uh, I might not be standing before you today. I might not be doing what I do today. The Lord used those people to help me profoundly, to encourage me when I needed encouragement, to help me when I was angry and by giving a listening ear and praying for me and pointing me to Christ again and again and again. And so maybe that's you today, and I just want to say I understand. I understand what it's like to hold on to bitterness and and to just let it hold on, just to hold on to it a little bit longer. It's easy to replay the events over and over in our hearts. But you know what happens? The more you replay those events in your heart, the angrier you become. The more stirred up you become. The, the more that that situation becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in your heart, in your mind, and probably you get the facts wrong too. But, but the saddest reality of it is when you replay those situations over and over and over in your mind and in your heart, what you're doing is you're refusing to deal with reality. You're refusing to deal with the issues before you. You're refusing the help of God who wants to help you to face that situation, to face that pain with his help. This is a this is a hard thing to do. It takes some courage to admit that you're wrong. It takes you admitting that you don't have it all figured out and that you need the help of another. This is why Galatians 6.1 says that we're to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is given in Matthew 22.37-40. That we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul. And so what I want to say is, instead of replaying those things in your mind again and again, do what Philippians 4, 6-8 says. And think on what is lovely and what is noble and what is good in the Word. Think about all the many ways that the Lord is at work in your life. Think of all the ways that the Lord continues to provide for you. Think of all the many ways in which He has been kind to you over the years. And what you're going to do is do what 
1 Thessalonians 5 commands us to do, to be thankful in all things in Christ Jesus. You know, thankfulness is a flower which is produced at the fountain of deep humility, J.C. Ryle said. It's one of my favorite quotes that of, of anybody because it reminds us that to be thankful is to be humble. Now, before Peter says the words to cast your cares on the Lord, he says in verse 5, I mean, excuse me, in 1 Peter 5, 6, that to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then he says in verse 7, to cast our cares on the Lord for he cares for you. You know, one of the one of the things I'll never forget where I was told that I needed to work in the area of humility. And what that meant was I needed to face reality. I needed to be humble. I needed to take that humble pie and eat it. That's what it takes to deal with bitterness. It, it means that we have to eat that humble pie and admit that we have sinned against God and that we have sinned against another by holding on to bitterness. I got one last story for you as we wrap up. As I, as I confessed my sin and repented of it, and I knew that the Lord had washed me clean in that moment, the very next day, my dad came over uh, to, to our house. My parents were divorced at this time. And we took a long walk. And I said, Dad, I want to share with you what the Lord did in my life yesterday. And I told him, I said, Dad, would you forgive me for holding on to bitterness in my life? And tears welled up in his eyes. And he said, yes. And will you forgive me too? And we had a moment of great clarity and reconciliation. This is what the Lord does. But we have to begin to see reality for what it is. We have to, like David, face reality with the help of God and with the help of the grace of God. We have to eat that humble pie. We have to apologize specifically we have to turn away, not only just be sorry from our sin, but to turn away from it and to take practical steps to demonstrate our repentance. The Lord is a great help to us in every situation of our lives. But bitterness, it slays its legions. But forgiveness, it cleanses the heart. It helps us to know and to be able to taste and to see that the Lord is good and that he always will be good because he is good. He's always good in every situation. And the great affront to the forgiveness of our sins is our pride. And what must, what must be put to death, I'm saying, is our pride. 
We must, if especially those of us who have been forgiven of our sins through Christ. Forgiving others is a demonstration that we actually possess that forgiveness that Christ has purchased for us. And if we refuse to forgive, if we continue to hold on to bitterness, it shows that we do not understand the costly grace of God. That we are not willing to face reality as it is with the help of God. And what we need to do is, in those situations, we need to take an honest and earnest assessment of our lives by sitting down with another trusted brother if you're a man or a woman if you're a trusted woman. I mean, I mean this. I mean, if you're a woman, sit down with a trusted woman and have an honest assessment about things in your life and why you're not able to forgive. I can tell you that from my childhood until we worked things out with my dad, there was a lot of bitterness. There was a lot of anger. But in that moment in in confessing to the Lord, in repentance, in being reconciled to the Lord, and being reconciled to my dad, there was such a peace. There was the Lord reconciled us to one another because we had had agreed with God that we had sinned. For some of you, that's never going to happen, maybe. But you know what? The thing is, is it starts with you. Start with you facing reality as it is with the help of God, with the help of his grace, with the help of his people who can, who can come alongside of you, who can pray for you, who can encourage you, who can help you when it's hard. And there's always the Lord who longs to hear from us in prayer. In fact, the best way to wrap up our time together really is in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. In Hebrews 4, 16, it tells us that God invites us, he summons us to come before the throne of grace for help in time of need. So I want to plead with you to go to the throne of grace for the help that you need. Maybe today you're not a child of God and you realize, you know what, I never have been. I've never forgiven. I've never, I've always held on to bitterness and it's it's, it's wrapped its tentacles around me. And what you realize, perhaps you're realizing today, is you need the forgiveness that Christ alone offers. And so I want to plead with you on the basis of Acts 16.31 to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And on the basis of Romans 10.9-17 to believe that he was buried and that he rose and to believe that in your heart and confess it with your mouth. And I want to plead with you to find a local church that preaches the word. That preaches the whole word. That where you can do life with God's people under biblically qualified male pastors. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. You are a loving God. We do not deserve this forgiveness that... You have offered to us so lavishly in Christ, and yet you still offer it. 
not because we deserve it, not because we merit it, but because you are good. Matthew one twenty one says that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, that he was born as a baby under the sentence of death, that Luke 19.10 tells us that you came to seek and to save the lost. And you are still doing that as John 10 says, you go out from the 99, you leave the 99 sheep and you go after the one lost sheep. You go after the sinner. You go after the prodigal who's stuck in the muck and the mire. So Lord, we thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted. You do not cast us away from your presence, but because of the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ in our place and for our sin, you give us the forgiveness of sins. You wash us clean. You make us, you are making us more like Christ. And even though the the difficult sandpaper people of our lives, they rub against us. You are even using them to purify us, to make us more like Christ. And so Lord, as it, even though it's hard to say, we're thankful for that. That we are being conformed even through difficult situations and difficult people into the likeness of Christ. Help us, Lord, to take that truth home into our hearts this week. Help us to repent where there's bitterness, where there's unforgiveness, where there's resentment. Lord, work in our hearts through your word. Take this word and, Lord, may it land on the good soil bed of our, of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.